Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, the title of the sermon today is The Power and Glory of Christ. The Power and Glory of Christ. Matthew chapter 24, we'll be finishing out this chapter. The disciples have looked upon the temple and they have seen it as a beautiful symbol of God's presence, His provision, and His protection. They could not imagine when this temple, this sign of God's blessing with His people, this covenant sign, when it would be destroyed. Christ said it will not always stand and we know that by God's mercy the temple was destroyed to remind Israel that the temple had come, that Jesus had come. And for you and I, God has templed with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But the times would come before Jesus, Jesus would return when men would turn away their ears from the truth. Even Israel herself would not abide the teaching of faithful prophets of God's Word. And there will, become, there will be a time of earthquakes and famines and wars of which this earth will be ravaged and he has never seen times like this. And in that time, the devil will raise up leaders and especially one who will commit a terrible sacrifice in the temple, signaling to the Jews that they must run for their lives to seek after God's deliverance. And this would be called the abomination of desolation. It would be the sign to the Jews that they must turn to God lest they die. In Matthew chapter 24, the text this morning is the closing, verses 29 through 50. I invite you to follow along with me as I read in the Word of God, Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not have let his house be broken into. 
Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you break open the will of heaven through the word of God this morning? Would you take the word and show us this Christ and let him be magnified and exalted above every thought we have and every glory of our own selves that we have and let us see him in his glory and his great power. Let him let us behold him and let us let this message even just make make our hearts beat just a little faster in expectancy of His return. No, Father, we long to see Him and to be delivered up from this wicked age. But we know that time is coming in a swelling way in which evil will rise up and fill up its wickedness so that the judgment will be ripe. Oh, Father, spare us from that day and we look forward to the truths that You have to teach us this morning. May every heart be warned and every heart be ready uh, this morning, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This past week, uh, I went down to South Carolina and I picked up Kyle from college. And if you get on Route 23 here in Columbus, um, you can actually take that all the way down to South Carolina and never really get off. And it's our favorite route. There's many routes to take, but that's one of our favorites. And on the way back, Kyle suggested that we stop at, um, at a place for breakfast called Tandem. Serves crepes. I've never had a crepe like this. It's worth a drive if you want to drive eight hours to get some breakfast. It was amazing. Stuffed crepes. I had what was called a lumberjack crepe, and it was full of breakfast proteins, ham and bacon or something, and and then it was eggs and cheese, and and then it was folded over a couple times, and then maple syrup and some sort of light cream was on it. It was delicious. On the way back then. Though we know that coming back this route, our GPS constantly wants to reroute us. You ever have that happen where it's telling you a better way? And sometimes it's, it's good to go that way. But I just want to stay on 23 the whole time. And so I always have to dismiss it. It's trying to get me to go a different way. So I have to watch it or else it's just going to do it automatically. It has this like little timer before it blows up your car. And you've got to hit it, say no thanks, or else it's just going to totally reroute you without your you know, permission. I've got to constantly watch it. I've got to constantly be ready for this until I finally get onto an area where it's like, well, you're in the middle of nowhere. The only way to get back to Columbus is this route, you knucklehead. You're, you know, you're still on. So in this way, we have been walking through Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus is warning, there is going to be many different things that you're going to come across. And there's going to be very realistic. There's going to be very uh, easy ways in which to go. There's going to be great deceivers among you, even saying they are the Christ and showing you special wonders and powers. But you've got to stay the course. 
but especially to this generation who is preceding the second coming of Christ, there will be the great forces of the evil one. It seems without a leash, it seems that the evil one is able to come and have even greater of an impact on this world in that in those last days than he even has today. If it would not be for the sovereignty of God, we would say that it is unrestricted power from the devil. And so this morning we're going to be looking at three different truths that can help us understand what it is for us this morning as we look in Matthew 24 about the glory of Christ, especially in his second coming, that we can behold and appreciate today. And first of all, we see that Christ is coming with great power and glory. In Colossians chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is one of the creators, that he is the creator. In Colossians chapter 1, we find out that the invisible things are made by the very word of Jesus Christ. That it is not only the Father, and it is not only the Spirit who hovers over the faces, over the waters of the deep, but it is Jesus Christ who is actively involved in the first six days of this world. That he is creating the sun and the moon. That he is setting the planets in their places and the sun in its place. And he is creating all things by the word of his power. And so Colossians chapter 1 brings us back to Genesis chapter 1. And Jesus is creating the sun and moon. And we think of the sun and moon as ruling. And in Genesis 1 we're told, we're told that the sun and moon rule in, in the sun rules the day by light and the moon rules the night by light. And these powerful lights along with the planets and stars that have existed today, untouched and unfazed by any human power whatsoever. We will never be able to do anything to all of these heavenly bodies that exist way out in space. Uh, we're theorizing today, you know, and we're, we're preparing to leave this planet for a better planet we think of as Mars. And uh, we're preparing to do all this, but the, the, the bottom line is, that we, with all of our power, even our nuclear power and even the greatest powers, aren't able to do one single thing to this universe. Not even one single thing. We can't even change the tide of our oceans. The heavenly bodies, the planets, the stars, the moons, and the sun, they stand as a fixed creation with immeasurable power. And we are still measuring the power on earth, many things can be manipulated. We make levees to create passageways between rivers, but no one has been able to come close to having power over the extraterrestrial bodies. We boast and we come up with these inventions and we, we buy out companies with great power and of communication, things like this. We have such immense power and we think of the wealthy and the powerful in this world. But the fact of the matter is that many things on this earth can be manipulated and even large things. But no one comes close to even nudging, to even, to even affecting any part of this universe. What is God doing? As we see in verse number 29, immediately after these days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not get its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. What is God doing? At the coming of Jesus Christ, God is showing us. He is showing the world. He is showing the universe. Both heaven above and earth beneath. He is showing his absolute reign and authority in the Lord Jesus Christ. This same Jesus, who by the word spoken from his mouth, emanated lights throughout all of the universe. 
by the words spoken in his mouth, said about great planets and great stars off in the distance, light years and billions of light years away. This great Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over all of the universe and he remains untouched. He remains unfazed, unparalleled, unrivaled by any force in the universe. The heavens will be shaken. The sun will be darkened. The stars will fall from their places. There is nothing in creation that he needs to reign and to rule. Everything is underneath his feet. Even the cycle of day and night that's provided by the sun and moon. That is, every one of us is subject unto. No matter how gloated we are and bloated we are about our power, how deceived we may be about our authority, there is no end to the cycle of the sun and moon. It raises and it sets upon every single one of us, whether great or small. It is an awesome expression here in verse 29 and 30 of the totality and the, the extremity and the breadth of the rule and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And mind you, in verse 29, Jesus does not appear to have this power. In verse 29 here, Jesus appears before the disciples like them. And He has already prophesied that by the hands of men, He will be slain. This awesome expression is something that Jesus is saying. You cannot miss. His coming will be unmistakable. Now when lightning flashes, you can't help but see it. And so we have been made aware earlier in this passage that as the lightning flashes across the sky, everybody can see it. It will be unmistakable. It isn't only the people of God that will see the lightning. It will be everybody. So it is universal. So what pre precedes the second coming of Christ is a reminder that there is nothing in the universe and there is no one in the universe more powerful than Jesus. And that all things all things that are in heaven and all things that are in earth are underneath His dictates. He will shake the heavens. Some have said even this means the trembling of angelic beings, of powerful beings, more powerful certainly than you and I, both demonic and holy reserved angels. Even the heavenly beings. It, there need not be any uh, discrimination of what this heavenly bodies would mean, of these heavenly things. It is literally everything in this universe will shake to its core at the coming of Jesus Christ. This Jesus. This Savior. And unlike His ascension, like in Acts 1 was described to us, which before the disciples seemed to be a quiet and uneventful thing. It was private, although glorious. Jesus will descend on that day through clouds from the highest vantage point. Everybody will see him. He will be accompanied by the splendor of the hosts of heaven, by angelic beings, beings more powerful and spectacular in appearance than any human Beings that are devoted to presenting the second person of the Trinity with adoring worship and give loyal obeisance. And there on that day will be a determined and successful gathering of every last believer by the means of these 
faithful agents of the Lord's mercy. You see, Jesus, who commands the heavenly hosts, will command these angels to go out into all the, the recesses in all the corners of the globe and gather from the north and the south and the east and the west every single child of God, every single person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Not one believer who lives during the tribulation will be missed. These angelic beings and their ministry of mercy will be thorough so that the promise of deliverance is gloriously fulfilled and not one part of God's saving mercy will be left undone. Do you recognize that our salvation is full and complete? It is both deeply complete. It is broadly complete. It is eternally complete. It is universally, powerfully complete. At the end of time, there will be nothing in God's redemption plan undone. And undone. And there will be nothing in God's plan done imperfectly. Whether hidden in the heart of mountains, in the time of tribulation, whether chained in obscure dark prisons, whether shuddering under the fear of the devil, devil's timely control, or isolated from any major population out in an unknown wilderness, no child of God at the end of the tribulation will be forsaken and left out of the promise of deliverance. This power of Jesus Christ in His second coming is glorious. Listen, it's glorious because it's saving power. You and I know power. We know power from an electrical point of view. We know power from a machine point of view. We know power from an explosive point of view. We know power from a manipulative point of view. We know power from an authoritative point of view. We know power from a corrupt point of view. We know power in its many forms and its many uses. But listen, what makes the power of Jesus glorious is its saving power. There's no power like this. There's no Christ who can make promises and guarantees and fulfill them like this Christ, this Jesus he is glorious because His power is merciful. What being in this universe has power that exercises that power in the means of extreme mercies? When you and I are divvied up power, how often do we contort, twist, and bend that power for our own glory? And certainly often for other people's destruction or at least their demise in some way in their belittling. But oh, how different is Jesus' power from our power. He is not like us. His power is a saving power. And that's our only hope. And when Jesus comes and returns, He comes with a saving power. And it is a power that emanated from the cross and it's now in the second coming shown to extend to the far reaches of God's care for everyone who has placed their faith in him until the end of time. It would be as if we could say God will make the stars to fall and the sun to be dark and the moon to go off its orbit. But not one child of his will escape his loving reach to save them from that day. He will move heaven and earth. To rescue those who are hidden in Him. It is glorious. 
because it's unlike any power of any evil person or force. It's glorious because it is a merciful power. It is glorious because it is a distinguishing power in its effect. The righteous will be delivered and the unrighteous, as a result of this power, will remain for an imminent judgment. It is glorious because it is the outflow of a glorious Christ. But not only do we see in this passage in verses 29 to 31 that Christ is coming with great power and glory, but we also see that Jesus is coming without a doubt. Jesus is coming again without a doubt. And verses 32 to 35 and beyond speak of this. In verse 35, we see this amazing statement about the permanent authority of Christ's words. And here we learn that Christians must acknowledge, and we had seen this earlier in our first sermon in Matthew 24, that every word of Christ is established, that we cannot trust what our eyes see. We must live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus makes a claim here. And he makes it clear that he is not just any normal Jewish rabbi. Okay? Because a Jewish rabbi could be outdone, he could be undone or redone by any other Jewish rabbi in his teachings. It could be modified, it could be set aside, it could be amended, it could be improved upon. When a rabbi spoke, they would always speak by the authority of another rabbi. They would always speak by someone else and adding, adding different things to their teaching in order to reinforce and in order to add credibility and authority. But when Jesus says these words, that his word will never pass away, he is claiming to be the ultimate rabbi. The cosmos, the universe, the sky. And everything will pass away. But not his word. But not his word. Listen to the character of the word of God as described throughout the scriptures. In Luke chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, I want you to think about that. that that's, that's easy to just let it sit in scripture and just think of it as, as this, this uh, theory, this hypothesis. But I want you to hear that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. It is easier for everything you hold dear, everything that you put your trust in, everything that you wear and everything that you live in and everything that you invest in and everything you stand upon and everything you sit upon and everything that you feel and everything you look upon, it is easier for all of that to vanish away in a snap than it is for one single part of God's Word to become void or to disappear. John 10, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. In Psalm 19.9, the psalmist says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The, the rules of the Lord, the word of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Not only is God's word eternal and unshakable and impassable, but God's word is pure and undefiled and therefore it can never fade away. It bears God's word, bears his own holiness. 
it bears his own credibility. It bears his own nature. If you know the word of God, then you know the God of the word. Because it bears out his nature. The psalmist says in Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. But Matthew, and we always like to look at what Matthew is bringing about again and what he had brought about 19 chapters before this in our, in our chronology. He had recorded Jesus' first big public sermon on the mount. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says something similar as what he is saying here in Matthew 24. Likely Jesus has said this several times as Matthew had followed him, but Matthew is also helping us recall how Jesus began his ministry, how the Logos, how the Word of God, the living Word began his ministry. And he began his ministry by helping us understand what the Word of God is like. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so when we take the mirror image of this, when we take the opposite image of this, we recognize this and we push against this truth with, with a negative way in which to say it in order to reinforce the truth of it. That is to say, if God's word can fail, then Jesus isn't returning. If even one word in the Bible isn't true, that's where Jesus puts the credibility. Okay? If one word fails, I'm not coming back. Because everything will fail before my word would fail. If one word fails, Jesus isn't coming. If God's word can fail, then listen... God's people are without hope. If this word of God isn't true, we are, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all people most miserable. If God's word can fail, then the wicked, listen, if God's word can fail, then the wicked go unpunished. And the righteous go unrewarded. If God's word can fail. So Jesus explains some more about his coming and he compares it like a fig tree. Like a fig tree that blossoms, prophesies that summer is coming. And the fig tree was the only tree that, that seemed to have a blossom in the springtime. And it was alive and it's soon it was, it was testifying that fruit would be born from its blossom. And that there would be a harvest to come down the road. After the long winter, the fig tree would finally show its life, just like you and I enjoy seeing spring just bring to life and animate our surroundings. So true, the fig tree was the promise to Israel that spring is here and winter is gone. The fruit would be, in it, would be enjoyed and it would be gathered and it would be stored up to the glory of the farmer. Oh, that will be a day. When those who fear God will be gathered and protected and loved and together with their God. But he tells us there's going to be another gathering. And as sure as the fig tree blossoms and the season of harvest is coming, so sure is the distinguishing between the fruit worthy of harvest 
and the fruit that will be rejected and trampled on the ground. It won't be long until you and your family might be going out to a fruit farm, an orchard, and you'll be picking apples. And you'll come across apples that aren't worthy to be picked. Those apples will fall to the ground eventually and rot. They'll be gathered up. The lesson of the fig tree is this. The people of Israel were, were, they were used to God using a fig tree as a parable. And many times throughout Old Testament, this was a story of Israel's health or their lack thereof. So it's fitting. It's helpful. It's relatable that Jesus would, would, would use this as a last sign of, of the coming of the deliverer of Israel. <coughs> Pictured by this common figure. Jesus says, learn this lesson. Learn this lesson. Christ wants everybody to know. Everybody to know. He wants everyone to learn the lesson. The harvest time is coming. Be ready. And beware to the extent that you care for your soul. Is your soul ready for the harvest? Not everything else, not your schedule, not your finances, not all these things, but that which is most precious to you. Are you ready to see Jesus? And so he tells the parable of the master of the house. You take care of the most valuable possession, life itself. Beware that you do not think that this world is all there is. And like in the days of Noah, you eat and you drink yourself drunk. While God is preaching to you for years and years of his saving mercy. And the scripture records that Noah preached for 120 years. Beware that you're not like that generation. Where not a single one of them would enter into the ark. Oh, how hardened their hearts were because everything they saw, they thought was real and they thought was life and they thought was everlasting. But soon, everything they saw would be swept away into a flood because of unbelief. Be warned, Jesus says. Such disregard for the Word of God is devastating. It's devastating. God will not relent in his judgment and the encompassing worldwide and merciless judgment of God will fall upon those who have rejected Christ in similar proportion as the great flood of Noah's day. Listen, on the day of God's judgment, there's no holding back. There's no communication of sentence. There's no shortening. There's no probation given. There's no excuse. Time is up. And there's no time for mercy. Everything's right for the harvest. If you think that on the last day, when God shakes the heavens and the earth, 
that on that day you will finally be convinced that there is a God in heaven and that God will listen to you in your cry for mercy. Jesus says, and he says to you 2,000 years ago, and in the hearing of the word of God in your ears this morning, he is saying to you, it will be too late. Jesus comes and you will mourn and you will grieve over the sorrow of your lostness. And you will grieve over the merciless hand of God that's come to you to exercise fitting judgment. And Jesus is telling you now, not because he wants to judge you then, but because he wants to give you mercy now. Because on that day, there's no mercy. You see, in Isaiah 42, Isaiah reminds us that as Jesus had come to Israel, even though they had all the descriptions of what he would be like, they still wouldn't recognize him. He didn't fit what they thought was the caricature of the conquering Messiah. They didn't believe they were that bad that they needed someone to die for their sins. And so they didn't recognize him that he would be a suffering savior. And so too, listen, on these great and terrible days of the tribulation, so too many in this world who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ will still harden their hearts and will refuse to turn towards him because he doesn't fit into their expectation. Like Jesus, when he had come the first time, these signs and even this recording of these signs are meant to be forebears of his mercy. If you do not heed the words of Christ today when he comes, you won't see him as your Messiah. You won't see him as your rescuer. You won't see him as your deliverer. You won't see God as the almighty merciful one. Oh, you won't see him that way. Like Israel did, you will reject him and the consequences of that day will be irreversible. Time will be up. Jesus says this generation will not pass away until these things are fulfilled and he is just simply saying, saying their time will be up. These people who are living during this time, during this time of tribulation and seeing these great things take place and, and hearing and experiencing even the power of the evil one, they will endure these things and if those who are hidden in Christ are during that time, then he will give them protection But there will be an eternal distinction between believers and unbelievers according to verses 40 and 41. This event will not only be a spectacular event, but it will also be a separating event and there's no third category. That's one thing I noticed about this and actually several other prophecies of the coming of Christ is that there's no third category. We like to have a third gender in our world. We like to have a third political party in our world. We like to have a third option in our finances. We like to have a third whatever. We like to have third everything, third food at lunch. 
There's one thing I notice about Scripture. There's only two ways to live. There's not a third. And while for you, you might think you're walking on a third way to live, you might think that you've made your own, you've carved your own way, God knows. And while everybody around you might not, while, while you say, well, I don't have to be judged by anybody, and that's why I'm living this third way, listen, God knows. The creator of all heaven, the creator of all earth, the, the God who shakes heaven and earth and brings stars to fall and the sun to darken, and the God who made you, who created you, He knows you. And He knows which one you are. And so while this event is spectacular, it's also separating. And it just separates out out of all of this planet. Out of all the tribes of people. Out of all the nations of people. Out of every single human being, God separates them into just two categories. Those who have by faith received through grace salvation in Christ alone. And those who refused to do so. That's the two people. And there's no third category. It is going to be a final divide between belief and unbelief. Between the just or the justified and the unjustified. Jesus had told the disciples, I come now in peace. I come now to deliver to you the invitation that those who will place their faith in me to be their perfect substitute, to pay the penalty before a holy God for his just wrath, for their sin, of which they rightly deserve, if they will trust in me and allow their sins to be borne out in my punishment and receive the free gift of righteousness and a right standing before a God, those who receive this, I have an invitation for. And it's an invitation of peace. But as Jesus takes his hand and he moves the arm of Peter down with the knife in his hand, Jesus says there will be a time when I will not come in peace, but I will come in a sword. My friend, we live in the time in which Jesus has come in peace. But don't be mistaken. When he comes again, he comes with sword. And there will be some who are working in a field. And there will be some in the office. And there will be some in the kitchen. And there will be some in the highway. And some will be raised to join with Christ in everlasting bliss and peace of which they had no deservingness, no worthiness of it, except that they had confessed Christ to be their only hope. And they'll be raised to be with Him in glorious power and redeemed unto everlasting life. And there will be those who remain in the field and in the office and in the kitchen and on the highway. And the fury of God would be poured out upon them in unrelenting wrath. 
for he will come with a sword. Do you think the father takes his son seriously? Do you think God the Father takes his son seriously? For those who reject Jesus Christ, God banishes to eternal hell. That's how serious God takes his son. Thirdly, we notice something about Jesus Christ that really stands out in this passage that speaks of his continued invitation to you and I to run to him for salvation. In verses 36 to 50, we learn the humility of our Christ. The humility of our Christ. You see, we learn in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ willingly obeyed the will of his Father when he limited the exercise of his attributes, including his omniscience, that is all-knowingness. With such humility of the second person of the Trinity, soon Jesus' humility will be displayed on a terrible cross made for criminals and men, not for God. And now... Now, before the cross, as he's meeting with his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, he doesn't even know when he will be vindicated before the evil and the powers of this fallen world. He doesn't even know what's on the other side of the cross. Think on the humility with me. Go on this journey. Soon the Son of Man will be spat upon, beaten and scourged. He will bear our griefs and He will carry our sorrows while we esteem Him utterly worthy of God's judgment. It must be Him. It couldn't be us that was that bad. He will be forsaken by His Father, cloaked in darkness for the period of three hours and forsaken by His disciples and forsaken by all the world of the mankind in whom He created. And He will pour out His life in His blood until the second person of the Trinity, until God Himself utterly dies, is lifeless on a shameful tree. What humility! And now, as the nails are being forged in the very hours leading to the cross, as priests are plotting, as soon as the devil himself will put it into the heart of Judas, as the disciples remain confused and their theology incomplete and essentially even faithless, now as the intensity of his purposes is growing to their appointed end, now Jesus says he doesn't know when he will be vindicated. He doesn't know when the end of the story is. He doesn't know when he will be worshipped in the beauty of the righteousness in which he will accomplish in mere hours on the cross. He doesn't know when he can say, I told you so. Do you and I have such patience? No, we certainly don't, certainly given the proportion of things at stake in this. But you and I are so eager to be vindicated, even in the small parts of our life in which we have taught, tried to do what was right and it was perceived as wrong. Yet here is incredible, humble patience by the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't know when the angels will serve him in his righteous acts of making all 
things right. He doesn't know when the last person whom he purchases with his blood will be ransomed. He doesn't know the last name in the book of life. He has restrained him now in earthly form in his humble state. He has restricted his access to such knowledge. He doesn't know when the devil and the most vile rulers of this world will be made a spectacle of at the height of their chiefest acts of rebellion before the Lord God Almighty as they raise their fists against God's covenant people, Israel, in those last days. He doesn't know when the devil will be put into his place. He doesn't know when the planets that he breathed out will shake. He doesn't know when the ransom story is ended. He doesn't know when he will sit on a throne that rules heaven and earth with such power and authority that lions will sleep with lambs and children will play over the den of the once most poisonous reptiles with laughter and ease. He doesn't know when the robes of His glory will be placed again on His shoulders for all to see, both in heaven and in earth and in the abyss. Such humility. This is our Messiah. He doesn't know what it's going to look like and when it will happen. But He tells us, as sure as the Word is, and sooner will the heavens fall into the ground, so, so sure is His coming. This humility, the humility of His not knowing, this humility tells us something. This humility draws us who have found His blood to be enough to cover our sins to just fall down before Him and worship Him. It is this humility that speaks to the redeemed heart and manifests in us a return of exaltation. While he lacks no affirmation and every heavenly being exalts Jesus today, he invites us to join with heavenly hosts to exalt him to the highest. His humility to us draws us to exaltation. Draws us to exalt Him. It is this humility that ought to cause us to draw near to Him today. You say, I, I don't know that I, could, that I could serve a God who's going to come with such a vengeance and fury and who will not come in mercy. I say to you, do you see how Jesus is presenting Himself to you today? It is in heavenly humility. If Jesus is not humble, then we can't approach Him. For no one can bear that sight of His resplendent holy glory and remain without being cast away and banished from His sight unless they have been washed by His blood, cleansed by His mercy, and accepted by His merit alone. We could not even approach the glory of God without being instantly and eternally banished. No one can behold the power and glory of Christ and remain unless they have been born again by His very power and glory, not on the throne, but by His cross. 
The cross is how we can stand before Jesus Christ on that day. You see, it all has to do with the cross. The cross before the throne. If not the cross, then no throne. And today Christ remains humble. Listen, Jesus remains humble. Yes, He's glorious. Yes, He's sovereign. And yes, I believe He he has omniscience. But now, even now, Jesus remains humble. Because why? Because He still receives people like you and I. He still hears our prayers. He still turns His ear and His heart to the One who cries out for mercy to save them. Jesus remains humble and yet exalted. But on that day, on this day in which Jesus speaks, Jesus' full embodiment of the eternal Godhead that existed in eternity past, before there was a sun, before there was a moon, before there was an earth, before there was a universe, His eternal Godhead that existed in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, will be glaringly clear. And there will not be a person alive or dead that will be able to refuse to prostrate themselves before Him. So compelling will His appearance be that every person alive will have two responses, Jesus says. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, receiving by grace His free gift of forgiveness, they will rejoice in seeing their Savior Jesus Christ high and lifted up and riding on a horse and vindicating all of His righteous deeds and ransoming once for all all those who have trusted in Him and His saving mercies by His merit alone. They will rejoice. You and I will be filled up with rejoicing. We will be speechless at times and shouting at other times, I think, just totally uncontrollably. We will rejoice, and that's the one type of person that there is on that day. But remember, there's only another person. There's only two types of people on that day. And Jesus says, when He returns, there will be many who will mourn. And that mourning means a self-pity and rightly deserved. Oh God, I am totally undone. I am wicked. I am sinful. I am deserving of everything you have for me in your judgment. And the grieving will be great. There will be a rejoicing that he has come or there will be a remorse that they were not ready. And Jesus is giving the invitation in this passage and saying, will you be ready to see me when I come? And I say that to you by just echoing his His application to this passage, will you be ready when God comes to receive your soul? Will you be ready on that last day? Will you be one who rejoices to see the one who paid so dearly to forgive you of your sins? Without fear, 
seeing the awesomeness and the power and the glory of our great God, being bold because of grace to look upon him who you have known and loved and now you see him fully? Or will you be in trembling and in the deepest grief of your life because you're receiving what you deserve? Let's pray.